Okay, let's go ahead and bow in a word of prayer then, and then we get started. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to know you and to know how to live our lives to please you. We ask, Father, that you will be with us this evening as we um, learn how to better study your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we were looking at repeated words, repeated phrases, and I wanted to just go back to that for one little word that that I had neglected to um, to, to give you. And let's look at um, it's the word steadfast love. At least that's how it's translated in um, the ESV. Sometimes in other versions it's translated a little bit a little bit different. Uh, loving kindness or um, something along those lines. But look at chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So we see that Jonah is, is thankful for um, being rescued by the fish and rescued out, out of the sea. And so he's thankful for God's steadfast, steadfast love. Now go over here to um, chapter 4, and let's look at verses 1 and 2. But it displeased Jonas exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So now look how he uh, is. He's he's angry. You know, it says he's um, exceedingly displeased, and the reason why because of God's of God's of God's steadfast love. He's He's thankful when he's experiencing God's steadfast love, but he's displeased when the people of Nineveh experienced it. Um, so that was just another example of the different words and how to repeat it and help us gain a little more insight into um, the book and how to um, gain the meaning of it. But we're going to look at this evening the word ra'ah in, in Jonah. And... Um, this has the basic meaning of, of evil, but there's other other sub meanings to it, and um, we'll go through these pa- these verses here that has this, and then we'll um, figure out what the meaning is in each of these um, of these passages. And because it has different meanings, you, you will have to look at the context to see what meaning is is being used. Now your, your translations have um, you know, done a little bit of that for you, but but we can still go through and see how you can learn about about words, word studies, and the, the first use of this word is in verse two. Arise, go up to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So, how is this word used here in, in verse two? How is the word, this word "evil" used here in, in this in this verse? 
Yes, um, it describes the people, but um, what is it? What is evil? What would be another? What would be a synonym for the word evil here? Okay, sin. Yes, their sin has come up to me. Their wickedness um, has come for me. And note that it, it is personified. It's almost like a person coming up into God's into God's presence here. Um, Okay, the, the next use of the word is in the seventh verse. And they said to, another, to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So, how is, how is evil being used in this verse here? Calamity, calamity or distress. Okay. Uh, calamity or, or distress. Um, it's... it's it's the storm that's, you know, all this wind and the tempest and the waves and everything. And so they're calling it this evil. But it's the same word as in verse 2 here. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, evil, evil in the, like verse 2, as, you know, like we said, the meaning of, of sin or, or, or wickedness, a moral um, meaning to it. Whereas here it's more a physical you know, the storm, it's, it's a physical disaster. And verse 8 is also used the, um, in the same way here. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So that's basically the, basically the same way. Now, the next use of it is... Uh, Chapter 3, verse 8, it says, um, the king is talking and he says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So how is um, evil used here? Yeah, it's... Paired with, with, with violence, and it probably has the same sense of a moral evil, a, a sinfulness, a, a wickedness. Yes, but but still, the basic meaning of, of a moral evil is, is 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 there. But yes, you're you're right about that. That used to vote um, individuals, very very wicked people, very very evil people. Right. But yeah, there is the, the verbal form, a noun form, and then like an adjective form of, of it. Okay, good. Good questions. Yeah. Okay, the, the next verse that has this in it is is 10th verse, and it's used two times. When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil way, God relented of the... Disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did he did not do it. So we have evil in the first half of the verse, and then disaster in the second half. So, how are these words used here? Right, and, and so we see that here that Nineveh repents of their evil. So so God. Relents from the from the disaster that he he was going to send. Mm-hmm. 
you, you can see that in the book in the book of Revelation. After God sends these plagues upon the world, it says often a couple of times it says, and they did not repent of their evil deeds. So you know his purpose is for people for people to repent. Okay, now let's look at verse one here of chapter four. This word is used two t- from your notes. You might, you see that it has two times, but if you're reading in English, you'll, it looks like it only is used one time. But it says, "But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry." If you take if you take it literally, it is it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and so it, in English it's translated exceedingly displeased. So how is the word word used here? Okay, an attitude. So this is a little different than the meanings that it's, we've looked at, uh, you know, previously. Mm-hmm. Right. It was something very, very disagreeable, something, something very distasteful to him. Um, you know, we saw in in the ten that Nineveh repents of their evil, and then God relents of the disaster that he was that he was sending. So Nineveh is in a sense in, in harmony with God. But Jonah now, he, he's not. He is he's displeased with God and this is um, his evil, you know, that he is displeased. And in um verse two or yeah, two it's it's the same meaning that we looked at at before. And now verse six, this is an interesting one here. Let me read six. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Discomfort is, is the word here that we're looking at. But there's a word play here. You think that God appointed this plant just to ease Jonah's suffering from the heat? So, so we see here that this word here is kind of as a play on words here, you know. It's relieving his discomfort from the heat, but there's also the idea of that God wants to use his plant to get rid of the evil with inside inside of Jonah. So we see here that this one word has multiple meanings. Uh, might mean displeasure, discomfort, disaster, or calamity, moral evil. And you have to look at the the context to figure out what the meaning is. Let's go on to our next section here, the the um, genre that is used in the in the Bible. What does the word genre mean? Okay, category or maybe maybe form. It's a literary, literary form, and you're used to this normally in normal day life. I mean, if you pick up a newspaper and you open up to the news section and you read a news article, you you interpret this one way. But then if you go back to the editorial section of the paper, you're not going to read this the same way that you would a news article. So different forms of literature require you to read them um, in in a different way. Uh, Another example is in is a biography versus historical fiction. You know, and his historical historical fiction, they might have 
real characters and real events, but then they fill in the dialogue and, and some of the things that are not real clear, whereas a biography won't or shouldn't go through and, and fill in dialogue and stuff that, that's done know. So we read different literature by in by a different different way. And and the Bible is literature and, and we need to pay attention to the literary forms that are in the Bible and there's different rules for interpreting the different forms or literary forms that are in, in the Bible. Like you would look at prophecy in, in one way, you look at the Psalms or poetry in a different way, and then narrative you look at it in a different way. And you have this um, chart here of the different forms. I'm just going to go through a couple of these quickly, then we'll turn it over to Don. Um, first one we want to look at is ex- exposition. And um, this is just the argument or explanation of truth. And examples might be Paul's uh, letters or like Peter's or, or John's. Um, these are laying out spiritual truths and um, exhortations for the um, Christians to read to read in the fall. The um, next form is, is narrative, and this is just a story, historical accounts. Jonah is a good example of of, of narrative. And then the next one is parable, and this is a brief story with a moral point. You know, you think of of this of the parable of the good, of the good Samaritan. Um, you have a, a man, you have a Levi, um, you have a priest. He's going down to Jericho, and all these. At first, you would think, well, this is a a real, um, you know, a narrative form. But the point of that is, it has a moral point, and so it's a it's a parable rather than narrative. And this is mainly found in, in the Gospels, and then there's also some places in the Old Testament where. Um, these are found. Another form of literary form is poetry. And a good example is, is the Psalms. And let's just look at um, one Psalm real quick to just kind of get a, get a feel for this. Uh, turn to Psalm 22. You know, this was written by, this was written by David and Crucifixion had not been invented as a form of torture and, and, and death at this time. But, but look at, like in starting in verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. At 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. I mean, this is, you know, a, a vivid account of, of crucifixion. But yet, this is not something that David experienced. He didn't never experience crucifixion. But the Holy Spirit used the experiences that David had and allowed him to write this in a poetical form so that on the cross, Jesus can... Say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Referring back to this psalm, showing that the 
things that David was talking about in a poetical form, poetic form, took place literally with Jesus upon the cross. So you can see that there's a difference in the way that we interpret poetry versus um, narrative. Another form is um, prophecy, and this is an authoritative presentation of God's word. It can also have elements of prophecy in it, of future telling. Examples in the Old Testament are Isaiah and Malachi are all prophetic books, and then in the New Testament, Revelation. And then the, the last category I wanted to bring out was um, wisdom literature. And this is how to live life well and in light of the fear of the Lord. Uh, examples are Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. And you have to remember in the Proverbs that these are not promises, but these are principles. And that you take them as how to live life in, in the light of, of, of God, in the fear of God, and how to live life well. But it's not like a promise that if you do this, then everything is going to be perfect, perfectly right. But these are principles that how, how we should live by. Any questions or comments about those? So sometimes a book or a section of a book can be more than one genre. Right. You can look at, um, even the book, the book of Jonah, you can, you can see that. We'll look some more about that in the weeks to come. But yes, Don, I went over, but I will turn it over to you. And they can have a job. They can support themselves. That's not true in ancient society. So Naomi is without any visible means of support. She gets ready to go back to uh, Palestine because she's heard that God's uh, providing now for his people by giving them uh, harvest again. Uh, her two daughters, daughter-in-laws, set out to go back with her, and she talks them out of going back with her because she says, if you come with me, she says, you're not going to have any visible means of support there either because your husbands have died. I don't have any more children, uh, sons, to give you as uh, your uh, heirs and your providers. So don't go with me. So that's the first part of it. Then you find Ruth in the field, gleaning. Then you find Ruth and Moab, uh, Boaz, Moab, <laughs> uh, on the threshing floor. And finally you have the city gate. All of these things have parts in this uh, story. So it's important to know all of these things. Alright, so the setting. Geographical, temporal, cultural sending. Uh, there's things that are going to come up here. Thank you, dear. What would I do without my wife? What would you do without your wife? Not very well. <laughs> uh, uh, there were some things that I wanted to, uh, to refer to that come by looking at the actual text. But there are interesting things that are going on in the 
book in terms of Leverett marriage that has to be explained. There are other cultural things like uh, gleaning in the field. The poor people, uh, foreigners, could glean on the edges of the field. They could follow the reapers and pick up uh, the, the grain was le- uh, that was left. I mentioned uh, before, if you don't understand uh, what's going on in the third chapter, it's because you don't have the cultural concepts uh, there. Naomi tells Ruth to do certain things. That's a symbolical way, uh, an acted out way of requesting marriage. Boaz understands that, but a lot of people don't understand that from our society because they don't know what's going on there. She jumps under the covers, and that's a way of asking for the protection of marriage. The last section, chapter 4, where Boaz uh, gives this guy, the nearer kinsman, the opportunity to redeem Ruth and redeem the field. Uh, he backs out because he can't afford to do that. And there's a reason he can't afford to do that because if uh, uh, he raises up a son, that son shares his inheritance as well as getting the inheritance that he thought he was going to get for free. Okay, so all of those things are going on in terms of the cultural thing. Uh, the most important part of this has to do with the characters in the plot. Let's talk about the different kinds of characters. Protagonist, antagonist, exemplar, model, foil, and a, function, a function, uh, functionary. The book is named Ruth, but the story revolves around Naomi. Naomi's got a problem. What's the problem? Okay, look at the end of chapter uh, 1. What does it say? 21. Don't call me Naomi, which is the word pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Okay, what does she mean by full and empty? Okay, she went out with a husband and two sons who got married, so there were five, no, four, four, four people, four people, that's full. But the Lord has uh, taken, her husband died, her uh, two sons died, and uh, now she's coming back. Nobody is accompanying her except Ruth. Okay, who am I? Dog meat? See, I mean, how, did, how was Ruth might feel if she says he brought me back empty? All right, go to the end of the book. I don't know exactly what verse it is. Is it 14? Read it. All right, the neighbor ladies say that, but there's a phrase later on that Ruth is 
better than seven sons. Because of what uh, Ruth has done, she has provided an heir for her dead husband, and she has provided. Okay. Uh, so, uh, actions of the book uh, have to do with what Ruth has done, which are commendable. But it's also what Boaz has done in terms of marrying this woman uh, and providing for her before they get married. So she's the protagonist. They revolve around this problem, full and empty. Ruth takes care of her in the first chapter by coming along with her, in the second chapter by gleaning, in the third chapter by proposing marriage, and in the fourth chapter by providing the child. Okay, Boaz provides for her by giving her an heir too. Uh, there's an interesting little thing that goes on in the book. There's the use of foils here. Foil is a character who sets off high, or highlights the attributes or actions of the protagonist exemplar. Okay, in the first chapter, Orpha goes back. Ruth goes with. In the last chapter, the guy says, I will redeem but he can't afford to, and Boaz does. There's an interesting little play that's going on. Let's read the first two verses of chapter one, uh, 4. Charlene? Okay, that's far enough. The uh, <laughs> phrase is uh, in the old King James, Ho! Section 1. That's because the phrase is a specialized phrase that somebody who is known but unmentioned. Uh, David, when he's uh, at, at the uh, place where he's going to get the sword, uh, he says he's supposed to meet people, uh, his soldiers, at such and such a place. Okay, so the... Uh, Boaz uses the guy's name, but the narrator doesn't use the the the, the, the name because there's an interesting thing that's going on. Later on, there's a blessing on Boaz. May he be famous. May his name be proclaimed. Okay, so his name is famous. His name is famous. He has a name, but this other guy, see, the foil, he doesn't have a name. Such an one. John Doe, see. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, though, that's part of, parcel of what's going on in this book. I mean, you have these two characters. Ruth and, and Boaz. Uh, he's called a man of standing. An ish gebor hail. And she's called a woman of noble character. An eshet hail. So these two people uh, fit together. Uh, they're being held up as uh, models. Examples. Uh, so the kind of... Uh, 
character that you're dealing with is very important in this uh, uh, book. Uh, the book of uh, Ruth is all about loyal love. It's all about loving your family member, taking care of your family member. Somebody made reference to the Good Samaritan. Same kind of things going on. That story was told in, re in response to the question, who is my neighbor? Say, the person who acted like a neighbor was the what? Was the Samaritan, who was a outcast. See, that's a neat little story. I mean, the foil that's going on there. You have a priest. You have a Levite. These are the religious people. These are the people that you think are the models. But it's not the guy. It's the good Samaritan who's looking out for other people. Uh, Ruth is held up as a model. Just like Rahab, Ruth, Mary. All of these people in the line of... Uh, the Savior. Uh, the plot conflicts that are going on in the uh, book, down under point six, uh, the uh, plot conflicts and the tests. What kind of test is going on in the first chapter? Go back, go back, go back, go back. Ruth shows Loyal love at what? At the risk of not having a husband, at the risk of leaving her family, friends, her God. In the uh, third chapter, when she goes down to the threshing floor, she does this thing. What risk? Rejection, but also... <laughs> The possibility. See, that whole chapter is shrouded in secrecy. Because this could be as bad as people paint it. So there are risks that are involved in this story. So, uh, I've, played, I've taken probably too much time here, but uh, that's basically the uh, way that you do it. You divide the story up into its episodes, different chapters, on the road, in the field, and each of them has their emphases. The first chapter is the word, go back. Will she go back alone? No. Ruth will be. Uh, the second chapter is, please let me go and glean in the field uh, of someone in whose favor, in whose eyes I may find favor. Okay, appears three times. Did he find? Did she find favor? Hmm? She found more favor than she really thought. <laughs> she starts out being a foreigner, then she is a like a servant girl, then she winds up being <laughs> a wife. So uh, all of these uh, things that are going on in, in the book. So. I think you can see that in the way I have identified these. I've 
tried to give you some uh, hints in there. Again, the ESB is very good in in this book. Yeah, do the do the same kind of things. I mean, who's the protagonist in the book of uh, Jonah? Are there foils? Uh, what's the story about? Uh, where does it take place? Interesting little story. Jonah is among the prophets, but Jonah only has one prophecy. This Jonah is a. <laughs> It's a story about a prophet. It's not really a prophecy. It's like the uh, it's like the stories of uh, Elijah and Elisha in the book of uh, Kings. But what's the point? Thank you. Thank you for showing up on a chilly evening. <laughs>